Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. In this episode, my guest is Amy Toth. Amy is a physical therapist specializing in chronic pain management. She emphasizes the connection between the nervous system and chronic pain, utilizing a holistic approach to therapy. She focuses on understanding the underlying processes of pain and implementing strategies to regulate and retrain the nervous system for long-term pain relief. Amy also offers a program called the Chronic Pain Recovery Method to assist clients in achieving a higher quality of life. We had a great conversation around the topic of pain, as well as the healthcare industry surrounding pain management. Let's welcome Amy. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So you're a physical therapist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When I think of physical therapy, what comes to my mind is usually like post-surgery, post-accident kind of stuff. Is it broader than that? Uh, yeah, it can be. There's There's a wide variety. So there's usually like what I call like acute care. So there are physical therapists like in the hospital. So if people are there, sometimes post-surgery, sometimes for just general illness, um, physical therapists will go in, um, work with them, basically make sure like, can you get out of bed safely? Can you get in and out of a car safely? So like, are you good to go home? Um, there are also therapists, like I work in more of the outpatient setting and more of an outpatient orthopedic, which is more kind of what you are going to be familiar with. So people either post-surgery, um, post-injury, or just, you know, they have back pain and they, you know, so their doctor sends them to come to physical therapy. There's also some, what we call more of like the neuro or the neurological side. So there are PTs that work with more like post-stroke, brain injury, um, those kinds of things. And most therapists don't cross over just, you know, between kind of the orthopedic and the neurological world, just because it is, they are kind of a lot different skill sets. Um, But yeah, and so it's, it's, it's actually, I think a lot broader than a lot of people realize. Okay. So what are some of the common types of chronic pain that you've come across? I mean, a majority, I mean, most of it is spine related. So either neck um, or low back, but there's also a lot of more of kind of the, um, kind of the conditions like fibromyalgia, which has become like when I graduated from school, a lot of people kind of like a lot of physicians and other medical providers kind of didn't really think it was a real thing, didn't really think it existed. Um, but now there's been more and more research behind it. So more some of those those kind of chronic pain conditions that have multiple various symptoms that kind of add add together. Okay. So what are what's your philosophy regarding therapy? Does it differ than other people in physical therapy? Um, I mean, kind of. I think, I mean, like a lot of my I think the challenge overall is people who who have chronic pain, who've had pain for a long period of time, the medical system treats them as if it's like as if it's the same and as if it's the same like underlying process that's going on, um, which it isn't. So a lot of times if you working with someone who's had pain for a long time and you try and treat them using the principles that like I learned in physical therapy school of just 
focusing on, you know, what's your flexibility, what's your strength, what are all these things, oftentimes it either doesn't help or more often it actually flares things up just because there's there's some different kind of underlying processes going on. And this is something like when I, because I graduated from PT school in 1999, this was not, this whole process was not really, um, wasn't really well known, wasn't really well, well researched, wasn't really out there at all. So a lot of this info and research has come about in the past like 10 to 15 years. So there's a lot of PTs and there's a lot of medical providers who don't necessarily I mean, don't necessarily know kind of the new the new science so to speak so the kind of going about it the traditional way which which ends up not being very successful unfortunately okay and and you mentioned you kind of focus on the connection between the nervous system and yes. chronic pain yes um what's the nervous system so everyone knows what yeah. we're talking about so nervous system is brain spinal cord and then all of the nerves that are kind of branching off the spinal cord that go out to i mean go out to your fingers to your toes to your organs to your joints just kind of like to the whole body and a nervous system is basically kind of like your body's messenger system so it's gathering information about what is going on in your body and then sending it up to the brain and the brain's kind of figuring out what it needs to do about it Okay, so it sounds like that could get pretty complex with dealing with pain. So how do you how do you find where the connection is there? Well, yes, it is tricky. What we know because we're starting we know more now about kind of how the nervous system is kind of working or processing differently in the kind of the chronic pain situation. Don't necessarily know as much about why some people will develop persistent pain and some people don't. Um, so basically, we know, like, let's say, um, and I don't like calling it normal pain. So I'm trying out different where my current word I'm trying out is more like episodic pain or acute pain. Like, say you touched a stove that was still hot. The nerves kind of in your skin would send signals up to your brain. Your brain would be like, holy crap, this is hot. If we leave our hand here, bad things are going to happen. And so it would send signals down to the muscles in your arm to kind of pull your arm away. But then you've, you know, you've removed your hand from the stove. So you're no longer necessarily in danger of any harm coming to you. So then pain kind of starts to calm down. For whatever reason, in about 25% of people with, you know, some injuries and instances, like their nervous system never fully kind of returns to baseline. And then that kind of starts to set up the stage for kind of more of a chronic persistent pain condition. So you can almost kind of, I mean, if you've had pretty consistent pain for more than about six months or so, you can pretty much assume that some of these underlying changes have happened. And that there is at least some element of kind of a a nervous system issue involved with your pain. Okay. So what are some of the tools and techniques you use to address that? Yeah. Connection? So I looking at I kind of look at it from two 
from two avenues. I look at one kind of regulating nervous system. Um, and then I look at it from like a retraining perspective. Because one of the things that happens um, in your nervous system when you've had pain for a while is the nerves themselves become more sensitive. So let's say like it used to take, um, I think of it kind of like a car alarm. Like when you get when you get the you, when you have your car and it's got an alarm, the default setting is like the alarm's going to go off if you break the windshield. Um, but then you, let's say, you know, something happens. So you turn your setting down, like super sensitive. So now the alarm just goes off. Like if the wind blows really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what happens with your nervous system is your nerves get super sensitive. So things that aren't even like physically strenuous enough to cause any like injury or damage, are still enough that your nerves are sending signals to the brain. So that's kind of where the regulation piece is, you know, coming in, trying to kind of get your nerves out of that kind of hypersensitive kind of fight or flight state. And so doing things like that, that's where you're kind of focusing like on sleep. Um, Maybe, you know, gentle movement, not like running a marathon or like high intensity exercises, but just like moving your body, um, in a comfortable fashion. Um, you know, you may, that's where things like meditation might come in and be helpful or like breath work or breathing techniques. Cause they're all working at kind of calming, soothing, kind of helping regulate the nervous system. Then there's a whole separate set of techniques that are, that are focused more on like the retraining because part of what happens in this process is communication between the body and the brain kind of gets a you know a little fuzzy, a little not very clear, and so there's there's certain techniques you can use to kind of basically try and retrain and kind of improve that communication. Which then, as a result of that, overall sensitivity goes down and pain levels start to go down because there's better communication. Okay. So when you, you mentioned meditation, mm-hmm. um, and that's something I'm at least a little bit familiar yeah. with. Is that kind of like, so when you first start meditating, you'll have like an itch on your nose or something like that. And when you're first starting med- meditating, it's hard not to just itch it, right? <laughs> but as you go along with meditation, you can draw your awareness inward and kind of keep your focus off of that. Is that kind of what you're doing with pain? Um, kind of, well, I would say if working actually more at kind of at the, well, there's, there is an element of that, but we're also actually just trying to work at like the cell, almost like the cellular level to a certain extent, mm-hmm. because what happens like in the like membrane of the nerve, like the, like its threshold for sending signals is like physiologically lower so doing meditation and some of these other things release hormones that actually kind of like basically affect the sensitivity of that membrane and things so yeah trying to use some of those these different techniques to basically basically kind of affect the hormone balance almost but trying to get more of like the hormones floating in your system that kind of help decrease the sensitivity of your nervous system Okay. 
Could you uh, give an example of like a patient you've worked with to overcome chronic pain and um, maybe it's like someone who had pain for a long time? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I've worked with, I mean, a lot of it is, I mean, people, a lot of people come in and like they've had pain for like years and sometimes even decades. Um, and I mean, the first thing I am usually doing is doing kind of a little bit of like education of how, you know, you've had this pain for years, you've tried all of these things, nothing has happened, uh, you know, nothing has helped, but like, I can kind of tell you why, so that that makes sense, you know, and which is in of itself can be like a game changer because you get so many people who have, been to all the doctors they've had they're on meds they've taken you know they've done procedures they've had injections they might have had surgery and everyone is so focused on treating the potential like anatomical structural cause and when if you believe that that is truly the source of your pain um then you're probably not really going to believe that there is much of anything that can be done because, you know, you're not going to cure arthritis. You're not going to cure like a degenerative disc disease. You're not necessarily going to cure, you know, some of these other things. So like, why even come to therapy? Because like, what's it going to do? Um, so just kind of explaining that, yes, there's these structural issues, but what's really kind of keeping the pain cycle going is some of these underlying processes, you know, with your nervous system and how your body is interpreting what's going on in your body. So, and it's, it's a tricky thing because it's hard to explain to someone how it works without them feeling like you're telling them it's all in your head. Because that's kind of like just how the, the process works is the signals go up, the brain kind of filters them, decides what to do, and then sends things back down. Um, but the concept that your pain itself is 100% real but it is also 100% um, produced and determined like by your nervous system um, is a challenging, but like critical concept to get across. Um, Cause you kind of have to understand how something works before you're going to try to fix it. So that is usually where I start. But like I say, I, when I think of um, like one of my most recent clients, he'd had, you know, like low back disc issues since probably like his early twenties. And he's now like in his early fifties. Um, and pretty much as like his wife told him he needed to try this. So he wasn't overly convinced from the start that this was going to be at all helpful. Um, but he was really surprised, you know, after, you know, kind of going over some of this background within, you know, a couple of weeks, like pain levels were already better because there is an element of, you know, the element of like the unknown is kind of scary and can kind of, and whereas if you have a better understanding of like why you're having pain and why it's still sticking around and why some of these things make sense, mm -hmm. that just kind of can calm your nervous system down in and of itself because you're not going to have as many of those hormones that you have floating around, like if you're having high anxiety or worry or some of those things. 
Um, so, and it's, it surprises people a lot, usually how just like knowing kind of what's going on is helpful. Um, and then we moved on from that into some more of the kind of the regulating pieces. Um, so kind of focusing on, on sleep to me is like the really big one because sleep affects so many aspects, not just your nervous system, but just like life is harder if you're not sleeping. Plus it makes pain a lot worse. So I think just even the combination of kind of understanding some of the science around how it works and making like a concerted effort to improve kind of sleep habits and sleep quality, that in of itself has a pretty big impact. Um, once he quit drinking, um, you know, energy drinks at like four or five in the afternoon um, and kind of changed what he did. Like if he'd wake up at night instead of getting up and, you know, doing something for two hours, kind of changing some of those habits to improve sleep was kind of like another big step um, in reducing pain levels. Um, and then adding kind of the third piece of the retraining. I mean, does pain go away completely? No. Are you going to be able to do things that you did when you were 20 without pain? No. Um, but are you going to be able to get back to doing the things that you enjoy doing? Um, you know, and can you, you know, do the things you need to do with less likelihood of a massive flare up? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so I was going to ask, are there limitations to what it can do? Like, for instance, I have a, uh, uh, ruptured disc yep. or something, a herniated disc mm -hmm. in, on my elbow. I think that might be the same thing, but, um, so there's definitely a physical component yeah. to it. I do understand that stretching more, doing certain things like that are going to help, but like how, how well can someone like me expect to feel after a certain amount of physical therapy? Um, well, one, first, how long has it been going on? I'm 38 and it started when I was probably 17, so 21 years. Um, some of that's going to kind of depend. It's going to, that will depend. Um, it depends on, because, I mean, a couple of things you can, that's another kind of, I think, misconception, like amongst not even just people, but like, I mean, physicians and all these things is imaging does not necessarily correlate with like symptoms or pain. Um, because you can have someone, you can take a room full of people who have no pain, give them an all, give them all an MRI and about 30 to 40% of them will have like abnormal findings of like a bulging disc or a herniated disc. So there's so many other factors that go into determining how symptomatic it's going to be that one, I think sometimes people get stuck on the, well, my MRI showed this. So obviously that means like, I'm going to have, you know, that's why I have pain and that's why my pain is never going to go away. There's not a really great correlation between that. Um, and so, you know, I think more in the early, you know, traditional PT is going to be, um, it'll be helpful to an extent. It'd be helpful probably closer to when you were like 20. Um, and you I mean, it could be helpful now. It just kind of depends how, it sounds kind of strange to say, but like how chronic is the chronic 
in your pain. Because I mean, the technical definition of chronic pain is like when you've had pain for longer than three to six months. But then I have a different definition of it's not necessarily time based. It's more um, kind of like sensitivity based, like how sensitive is your system? Like, do you go out, you know, can you tie your shoes wrong and it flares you up for three days? Or, you know, kind of what kind of intensive activity can you do without having a flare up? And so the the more on the less sensitive side that your nervous system is, the more that traditional PT is probably going to um, be helpful. Um, There are some stages where people just are so like their system is so sensitive. Traditional PT is actually going to make it feel worse. because we kind of talked back about how like the nerves have the threshold before they're going to fire. So let's say you have to have like, you have to like have 10 units of whatever it is for your nerves to fire normally. Um, Someone, you might have some people who are sitting already, their baseline is already at like a five or a six. So they really only have four or five units of whatever it is, whether it's walking or sitting or whatever, before they're going to start to have symptoms. You might have some people who are sitting more at a baseline of like two or three. So they've got a lot more wiggle room. So the people whose nervous systems are sitting at that higher threshold, it's not going to take much to set them off. So you go send them to traditional PT and have them ride the bike and try and do all these strengthening things. Like they're going to be flared up in like two seconds. Um, so there, that's the, the long answer is it depends. Um, and I think you can tell it too, by like, just how much are you like doing your daily, like how is, how much is your daily life already affected by pain? Like, is that the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? Um, are you adjusting your life and your schedule based on how it's going to affect your pain? If you're into that, kind of stage of persistent pain you're gonna need you're gonna be better off starting with more of like a nervous system based approach versus like well no just every time i go do this then it bothers me for a week or it's not unless i do that then that's going to respond a little bit better to kind of traditional physical therapy kinds of things okay um you mentioned sleep being pretty yes. important. So we're, how do you help people get better sleep? Good question. It's a it's a tough one um, because there is that cycle of it hurts. So then you don't sleep well. And then when you don't sleep well, that physiologically tends to increase pain levels. So then you're not going to sleep well still. So what I'm usually focusing on first is a, like getting into a routine because when you're in, when you've had pain for a long time, I kind of think of your, your brain has kind of turned into a helicopter parent. It wants to know like, and it's trying to protect you from danger. So it wants to know what you're doing, when you're doing it, how long you're going to do it for, and what's the likelihood that this is going to cause pain or cause problems. So um, when, in terms of sleep, if you can set a pretty consistent bed, like time that you go to sleep, 
And even just like a little bit of a routine um, leading up to that, even like 10 minutes or so, your brain starts to recognize, okay, this is the time we go to bed every night. Okay, you're doing this, which means we're going to sleep now. Like it starts to be like, okay, we know, we know where you are. We know what you're doing. We know that this isn't something we have to worry about. So we can kind of settle down a little bit. So just kind of establishing that consistency can calm the nervous system down a little bit and help promote um, better sleep. Plus, just in general, there's, you know, other, there's just overall kind of sleep habits that are good in terms of like, you know, the caffeine and, and, you know, screen time, you know, within a certain, you know, period of time going to bed um, and those kinds of things. But to kind of specifically target more like nervous system, I focus a little bit more on that nighttime routine. Okay. So uh, I, for instance, have a fairly good routine. I wake up typically at the same time every day. I try to go to sleep around the same time, but my body doesn't seem to want to go to sleep when I want to, right? <laughs> like I'll, I'll have days where I'm, it'll be two in the afternoon. And I know diet has something to do with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you eat junk food, you're just tired right afterward. But in a normal, normal day, sometimes I'll be tired at like two in the afternoon. I'm like, I can fall asleep right now, but I'll just keep going for the day. Yeah. Then when it comes to actual bedtime, cannot sleep. So what do you recommend in those cases? Um, good question. I think, you know, that's one I kind of, I still kind of debate a little bit because there are some people that say, if you're in bed and you can't go to sleep, you know, within like a half hour, you should get up and do something. And then there's other people say that like, well, if you do that, you're like training your body to like get up and go do something. Um, versus so you should just kind of like stay there and do other kind of like quiet, you know, calming things until you fall asleep. I don't really quite know the right answer on that one. I haven't really seen any research like one way or the other. So what I tend to tell people is start off with trying to do something like calming in bed, preferably like non-electronic. So maybe some, maybe music, maybe reading if it's like an actual book. Um, try that for a while. If it if you're getting to a point where it's so like it's like physically uncomfortable to be laying there, then maybe kind of get up and try and see what is the the minimum amount of like being up and moving you can do and then try getting back into bed and kind of starting that that attempt to go to sleep again okay um you mentioned the healthcare system earlier what do you feel yes. like its biggest failures are and why is it feeling so bad when it comes to chronic pain um because one i think they're treating it like they're treating chronic pain the same way they treat a broken arm, um, trying to fix the structure and then and then treat the symptoms um, instead of. And like chronic pain, there isn't necessarily I mean, there might be a structure that's showing up on imaging, but by this point, that is usually not the like primary um source of pain 
Um, okay. So, and then I think the second aspect, sadly, is if you're not being successful in treating someone with pain, instead of acknowledging that, you know, this is my, like, this is my scope of practice. This is my like bag of tools and tricks that I have, and none of them are working. Um, instead of going that route and then maybe trying to seek other providers or other people who might have a different scope or different toolbox, a lot of times then it's, instead of acknowledging your lack of ability to help, it oftentimes gets shifted into a, well, you must just want drugs or you must be like faking it, or this is all in your head. Um, instead of giving the patient the benefit of the doubt that what they're experiencing is real and we just don't exactly know what to do with it, it there's kind of a, a bit of like a, a gaslighting and, and, shifting the blame onto the person who's coming in for help, unfortunately. Is that be, I mean, is that an ego thing? Is it like, a, <laughs> I'm the expert, so I need to have the answers. And if I can't answer it, it's on you. That that's, that's kind of my, a lot of it, I think is, I think that is my, my kind of take on it and how much of it is just, you know, I honestly know that it's an overinflated ego, but it's more of a like, you know, this is what I know. And if like, if this isn't working, then it must be something on your end. Cause it's not like, you know, it's not something on my end because we know this, you know, yeah. And this works in a different situation, but it does this. And I, you know, I think, yeah. So I think, I mean, those are the two, I think the two biggest ways that I see, um, how this yeah this just isn't working um for people because i think there was a study was, i don't know but anyway i know like at this point in time um there are more new cases of chronic pain than there are new cases of um, diabetes high blood pressure or depression so our system clearly has not figured it out is there a, at least in your opinion, have you seen any link between depression and chronic pain? Like do people who are depressed experience pain a little bit more frequently? Yeah, I think there's a huge, I mean, yeah, there's a pretty significant link. Um, I mean, one hand, just superficially, it makes sense. If you're in pain all the time, it is hard to stay in a good mood. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you're limited in what you can do, and if you can no longer do the things you like to do, it's going to be hard to stay in a good mood. But then you also just have, there is kind of a physiological correlation of when you are usually in depression, the kind of the current thought is there's either low levels or altered levels of, you know, certain hormones um, like serotonin, you know, dopamine, some of those kinds of things. Those are those same hormones have a soothing effect on kind of your nervous system and, and pain processing. So if you have less of them floating around because of a, a depression or other kind of mental health diagnoses, then you're naturally probably going to have, if you already have a pain condition, you're probably going to have more pain because you're, you don't have as much of those things floating around to help calm your nerves either. So 
they are are fairly well linked, unfortunately. Okay. Or I mean, however you want to look at it. And then I think it makes it even easier to kind of tell people like, well, you're just depressed. That's why you hurt more. And there's so much more to it than that. Um, it seems like in our current healthcare system, and you touched on this a bit, uh, pain medication is pretty prevalent. And uh, I think evidence over the last few decades has shown that it's generally not good for people and society in general, like Oxycontin. It's an extremely addictive drug. Um, yeah. How do you transition someone? If someone comes to you for pain, chronic pain, and they're mm -hmm. on some heavier pain medication, how do you transition to that, them to a more holistic approach? Yeah. Um, the one I'll just say as a PT, that's the medication piece is is out of my scope. So the medication is usually being managed. Um, and then I'll have my other soapbox is we went through the opioid crisis. So now so many pain doctors and primary doctors are afraid of pain medication. So there are so many patients who have been on you know, heavy duty meds for years, sometimes decades. And they're going to their doctor all of a sudden one day and being told, we're not going to prescribe it to you anymore. Mm. You can't have been on those meds for that many years and go cold turkey without serious like challenges and withdrawal and those kinds of things. So I think that since so many people are going the opposite end of wanting to prescribe meds, I think that's a whole nother issue in of itself is how do you do that ethically without just cutting people off because people are getting cut off and I, I don't think that's the right way to go either. Um, I think there's an element of, but in terms of trying to kind of transition, you know, focusing a whole lot on, you know, what are the things you have control over and what are the things that you can do that's going to bring, you know, basically positive input into your nervous system? What can you do to kind of try and call, you know, work on regulating, work on retraining, kind of get things going in the right path, and then kind of start to back off kind of on more of some of like the pharmaceutical methods. I think, again, if you just go like, well, let's just go cold turkey, that's, that's going to be hard. I mean, there's just going to be like physical withdrawal issues pain's going to like skyrocket and then your ability to actually try and get a good plan and system and techniques and tricks in place is that much more difficult because when you're when you hurt so much you one sometimes physically can't do things and there is an element of like cognitive change like when you have pain that ends up when you've had pain for a long time that takes up a lot of brain space um, to basically be dealing with pain all the time. So there's less brain space for other things like, you know, math problems and like high. So that's why a lot of people who are in pain also talk about kind of a brain fog mm. or memory issues is because their brain just doesn't have as much space for that stuff anymore because it is so like spending so much time and energy on dealing with the pain. Yeah. With uh, with the pain meds, you kind of mentioned that, well, you alluded to that sometimes it's necessary to take the pain medications to 
do your day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Can that also make it hard for people to feel the improvements when they're getting better? Yeah, it's, um, well, it depends. I mean, if, if their pain is being, is like pretty much, if their pain is like mostly like they can take the pain meds and their pain is under control and they can live life like normal. Yes. Um, I, you know, being on that could be more difficult, but there's, I would say that is probably a smaller percentage of people, um, who are taking these kind of medications long-term. Most people will, I mean, they will take their pain meds because it takes the edge off enough so that they can kind of function. Um, but not to the point where they're like, where they're living life like they don't have any pain. Um, so in that instance where most people are, st- I mean, they still definitely have symptoms, they can, they can start to notice because they will notice, well, you know, I used to only be able to sit for 10 minutes, you know, before my pain flared up. Now I'm sitting for like 15 to 20. Okay. So majority of people will be able to notice it is, it is slow and it is small improvements. Um, but you also have to think, you know, the longer something's been going on, you know, the more time it's going to take for it to kind of start to resolve. Okay. So if someone came to you with chronic pain, mm-hmm. what would be some general advice that you gave them? Um, and what advice might you give them to like avoid certain things? Um, I, I usually will give kind of a general kind of activity tolerance guidelines because, you know, when you're in a persistent pain state, your nervous system is more sensitive. So things that aren't physically strenuous enough to cause like harm or damage are still going to be enough to send a signal and your brain to interpret it as pain. So you, you can't really go by the, if it hurts, I shouldn't do it because then pretty much you're not going to do anything, <laughs> do anything. So I usually use the guidelines of, you know, if you have, you know, you kind of have your baseline pain. If you can do something and it, it maybe bumps it up by a point or two, but when you stop that activity, if it calms down within about an hour you know, that's kind of an okay, like response to that activity. If you do something and your pain like doubles and it lasts like for the next, you know, all that day and into the next day, then we know that was a little too intense. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to not ever do that thing again, but let's say you did it for an hour. Maybe you should try doing it for a half hour because there is usually kind of a threshold at, you know, which you can do that's not going to send you through the roof. And then you get your body and your nervous system used to that level of activity. And then you bump it up. You don't double it. You might add like five minutes instead of trying to go back to that hour again. Um, but it's all about kind of, and which is kind of hard because people in pain oftentimes try not to pay attention to it. So it's an, a balance of like, you kind of need to pay a little attention to it, um, but you need to pay attention to it without 
And like, without the judgment behind it, without the thinking like, oh, this feels like it hurts. Well, great. Now I'm totally not gonna be able to get out of bed for like the next three days. And this is going to be horrible. And I can never do it. Like, so it's, it's kind of a fine line of, of how do you notice it without then being kind of like consumed and like obsessed with paying attention to every sensation that you ever have. Okay. So stretching um, can help with pain on the physical side. Do you have any advice for people who are getting into stretching? Uh, For instance, I'm, I've been stretching consistently for like two months. I've never been consistent with it before. How do you, how do people, what's the right way to approach stretching and how long should you do it? And should you feel more hurts or should you do all around? Good question. So it, again, it, it depends. Like if you are doing that as a, like part of a, like as a warm up or a cool down, um, to some other activity, usually like as part of a warm up, I suggest doing more kind of like active dynamic stretching. So instead of like getting into a stretch position and holding it for 30 seconds to a minute, I suggest more like active movement that will stretch the muscles that you're trying to stretch. Um, because static stretching will kind of inhibit the the strength of the muscle that you're stretching for like a half hour, an hour afterwards. So pre-activity, doing a little more active movement and active stretches is better. Post-activity is where I would go into more of the static stretches of the muscles that you feel like you've worked. Um, overall, just kind of general stretching. Um, if you have nerve type symptoms, so like numbness, tingling, those kinds of things, you have to be a little more cautious um, kind of with your stretching than if you don't. And if you know, because if you tend to get that numbness and tingling and you're doing a stretch and you know, you weren't having any of those symptoms, you start to stretch and you start to notice them, you're going to want to then you need to like tweak the exercise, tweak it a little bit in terms of either position or how much you're going into the stretch. Um, you can push into muscle discomfort with the stretch um, more so than pushing into like some nervy kinds of symptoms. Muscles can tolerate that um, and kind of rebound from it, whereas nerves just tend to get more upset and more symptomatic. Um, so in general, um, you know, if you're wanting to work on getting like actual length in the muscle, you need to be looking at least like 30 second kind of static, um, holds. I am a, just a big fan personally, cause it's comfortable is looking into more like restorative yoga kinds of positions because there you're, you're going into stretch positions, but you have props that are helping you like get there and then you just get to relax into it. I find that like, if you're having a hard time going to sleep, look at some restorative yoga stuff because that stuff tends to help me fall asleep. Um, but, and again, it's to get a good stretch, you probably need to go into some level. I wouldn't call it pain, but like, I mean, when you're stretching, you can tell like, oh, this is getting stiff. This is getting tight, but like you can tolerate it for 30 seconds to Mm -hmm. a minute. If you're pushing to the point where like you're wincing and you're gritting your teeth and you're holding your breath, um, that's not the point of a stretch that you want to, that you want to be in. Okay. How can someone tell if they're, um, 
triggering a nerve versus versus a muscle when stretching. Really more like sensation changes. So nerve, you're going to get more of like a numbness, a newer, like an onset of like, oh, my kind of like your foot when like your foot falls asleep and it's waking back up. Like you're going to get more of those kinds of sensations. So either a numbness or like a prickling or like a buzzing, those kinds of things are more or anything like really sharp or like intense. Okay. Um, would be more of a nerve, whereas a muscle is going. You're going to feel it more usually in the entire length of the muscle, and it really just is more kind of like that, like a tension, um, a tension or a discomfort versus like a change in sensation. So nerves are usually involved with the like it just feels different. It's numb, or maybe it's burning, or maybe it's prickly. Okay. If so, if someone's feeling like if someone's doing hamstring stretches, right? Mm -hmm. And they feel like they're getting uh, nerve sensations. Could their nerves increase in flexibility still over time? It's a little, um, it made it good question. What you can do is, is it's more, I mean, hamstring stretch is the kind of like classic like it's a it's a nerve like end range hamstring stretch is a position that puts like especially the sciatic nerve like on tension. Mm -hmm. So I think you you aren't necessarily improving the flexibility of the nerve, but you're improving its tolerance to being moved and stretched. Okay. Um, and in those cases where if you feel like you're getting a lot of that, that's when I will have people go to more things like. Um, like foam rollers or like massage sticks because and then because you can still work on that muscle and work on loosening the fascia in the area without putting it into kind of an end range nerve stretch position okay so using a foam roller is similar to stretching so like if you're just foam rolling your hamstrings that's because you a similar because you've got you've the the foam rolling is going to affect um i mean it's gonna affect muscle but it's also going to affect the fascia so the fascia is is i think of it kind of like saran wrap but it's like it's the layers around the kind of keep your muscle together mm -hmm. and like, so i think of it kind of like saran wrap so sometimes you know how saran wrap kind of like sticks to itself yeah so you can get you know kind of like a stickiness in the fascia in the muscle that can then, when you're going to stretch, can, you know, restrict your mobility to a certain extent. So you can use foam roller and some of those other techniques to basically kind of like unstick the saran wrap. Okay. So that it's, you know, that's just one layer, you know, restriction that you're kind of improving. And then you actually will feel that you will actually notice um, improved mobility. So here's a test for you to do next time you want to stretch your hamstrings. First, just like do it like a assuming this isn't painful and isn't going to provoke anything, bend forward, see how close you come to touching the floor and then find like a tennis ball or like a can of soup or something, roll it back and forth from like your heel to your toe for like a minute or two. Now retry your forward bend. Chances are you're actually going to reach farther because doing kind of that rolling on the tennis ball has kind of loosened some of the fascia in the bottom of your foot. Hmm. And that will actually give you a little bit more mobility because then there's less tension kind of along that whole chain. Oh, interesting. I know it is. It's a pretty kind of interesting kind of trick. No, I've watched a little uh, 
YouTube documentary on fascia. So what you're talking about is like the the layer of it's like muscle like right near the skin, right? Yeah, it's like a, like if you've ever like if you're ever eating like a chicken and like or, or preparing chicken and that kind of layer that white kind of filmy layer that right. you pull off, like that's your fascia. So there's fascia like around the muscle fibers, like the individual fibers. There's also fascia around like a muscle as a whole. And this is another, it's another whole fascinating thing. Like when I was in school back in the olden days, like quite honestly, like no one thought fascia was important. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't really think it served. Yeah, it kind of served a little bit of a purpose, but like it was kind of an inert substance that really didn't really do anything than give a little support. But we've now learned that like fascia is probably what helps your body respond to things so quickly. Like there are, um, there are contractile elements in fascia. So instead of just being like a passive thing, like it can tighten and relax. There are other receptors in the fascia and that's how why like doing something in your foot is going to have an impact like on your hamstring and your low back because okay. they are basically communicating. Um, so it's almost, it's kind of like, um, a, it's kind of like it, like a skeleton, but it's not made of bone. It's kind of, it's made more of like, I think of it, I think of it kind of like the stuff that Spider-Man shoots to make his web. Cause if you look at it, like structurally, it does, it does kind of look like that. Yeah. So from the documentary I watched it, it made it sound like, and this touches on what you were explaining mm -hmm. so that uh, the balling up of saran wrap yeah. would be uh, un unhealthy fascia that hasn't been stretched, hasn't been uh, working out consistently, yeah. stuff like that. And uh, if, it, if it's healthy, it's more uniform and um, it, it's just not a ball of mess yeah. like that. Yeah. Can the fascia become more uniform like can it go yeah back to the healthy yeah. state yeah. or can it get to the state where there's no i mean it can return? it I mean it it can get to that state but like you can't i mean one of the biggest actually most important things is hydration in terms of a fascia um but i imagine i mean like if you took someone you know who like take an elderly person who is wheelchair bound and isn't really getting any movement. Yeah, their fascia is probably not going to be in a healthy state. It's probably not going to get better because they're not all of a sudden going to start walking and moving again. But in the average person, yes, if you're staying hydrated, you know, if you're, you know, monitoring your posture and your repetitive activities and all those kinds of things, it can stay pretty healthy. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, arthritis earlier. Yes. And people get arthritis in their joints pretty typically, like yes. um, knees are a big one. What do you recommend for somebody who has arthritis on their knees that's making, you know, that's limiting their physical ability, but they want to stay in shape, they want to go for walks, they want yeah. to be more active, but they're just so limited by yeah. that knee arthritis? Um, I mean, and one thing, another, you know, the most important thing to keep in mind is um, having a Arthritis doesn't in and of itself have to be painful because you can have, I mean, you start, most people start getting, because arthritis is basically kind of 
normal wear and tear that happens to your body um, as you as you age, unfortunately. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to become painful. One, I think the overall, your overall other health and issues can play an important factor. Like if you have diabetes or if you have other medical conditions, um, managing those will be important to kind of your, your ability to do things. Um, otherwise, basically you can, if you maintain flexibility and you maintain strength, then your joint is going to be supported. There's going to be less pressure and less strain on your joint, which ultimately will most likely lead to, you know, less pain. But you can't go from zero to 60. Like you can't, you know, depending on how painful things are, you you don't want to go and like, you know, hit the gym or, you know, walk for an hour. You have to find, you have to, you know, you kind of have to play around and kind of discover what your baseline is, like how much of, you know, the things you find, the things you want to do and experiment a little bit with like, how much of that can you do without making things worse? And then you start there and move your way up because that's the one, another thing about pain is it ultimately kind of becomes a learned response and a learned pattern. So if you're always pushing into significant levels of pain, kind of like if you've ever heard of all those, um, who is it? Is it Pavlov that did the thing with the dogs where like he'd ring the bell yeah. when he was feeding him and eventually he'd just ring the bell and they'd start to slobber. Like your body kind of does the same thing. If it gets used to the fact like every time you do this activity, it's going to hurt. Like it kind of, it those pathways become basically more ingrained and more learned so you don't want to continue to push into it because then you're just going to reinforce that pain process so it is important to kind of find kind of find your baseline and like gradually slowly work from there i got you so like if 20 minutes of walking is hurting your knees maybe go to five minutes or 10 minutes so that you're training your your brain to realize that, oh, this isn't a bad experience. This is positive. And then maybe after a little while, you can work your way up to 20 and then that wouldn't hurt anymore. And in general with arthritis of like either like back, hips, knees, like doing stuff in the water is a great place to start to Mm -hmm. movement and activity because if you're into your waist, you're you're unloading your joints by about 50%. If you're into your chest, you're unloading your joints by about 75%. So you can get some more movement and some more exercise in, in a kind of a less, you know, strenuous environment. Okay. Um, Earlier you mentioned that stretching before, like lifting weights or stuff can make you actually weaker. I'm happy you mentioned that because I read a couple of years back or a few years back that Stretching before like lifting weights can actually make you a little bit more injury prone. Yeah, because and it depends like it can because let's say, I mean, if you're trying to, you know, strengthen your legs, if you do a bunch of quad like static quad stretches or hamstring stretches, those muscles aren't going to be working as well. Yeah. When you go to lift. But on the other hand, like, let's say you can sometimes use it to your advantage. It's like, let's say 
when you're running or when you're doing other things, if you if you know that you like tend to overuse like your hip flexor muscles, then you might actually want to stretch them statically beforehand because then they won't be able to work as well and you won't be kind of have the ability to kind of overuse them as much. So you can kind of use it in a, in a targeted fashion as well. But yeah, if it's something you're wanting to go do heavy duty lifting with, do not statically stretch it beforehand. What's something, what's the most surprising thing that you've learned about chronic pain in your career? I, did, I mean, just the, just how much pain and so many things in your life in general are like determined by your brain. Um, and like, if your brain thinks something is true, it's going to filter out. It's going to one notice the thing. It's going to notice the things that support your belief. Basically it will filter out things that don't necessarily correlate with your belief, but then just like the things it can make happen. Like they've done studies on on like on prescription medications, not necessarily pain medications, but where like it's the same drug, but you have in one group, the doctor says, I want you to try this drug. I think it's going to be great. It's going to work for you. It has very few side effects, blah, 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 blah. And then the other group gets told like, eh, I'm not really sure if this is going to work, but we'll try it anyway. But then like, you might want to watch out for these things because it tends to have some side, like the people who kind of are told that it's going to help and it's going to be effective. Um, like they physiologically process and utilize the drug differently and tend to uh -huh. have a more of a positive effect from the people who were basically told it might or might not work. And you're probably going to have a lot of side effects. So like there is, I mean, pain is a, is a, a, the, the definition is it's a sensory and emotional experience. It is a mind and a body thing. It's not totally one. It's not totally the other, but I think it's just kind of like, it's amazing. Like the stuff that your brain does is just crazy. Yeah. What do you find to be the most challenging part about working with people with chronic pain? Um, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, there one, there is, you know, if someone's had a total knee and they're coming to me, there's a pretty straightforward, like, you know, oftentimes the surgeons even have protocols. You should do these exercises at this point, you know, do these exercises in the first week, do these exercises, you know, at week two. And there's a pretty normal and kind of expected process and a normal and expected improvement and the person coming in understands, I had a knee replacement. These are the things I need to do. When you have someone coming in with chronic pain, one, their understanding of the problem may not be totally accurate because they may be focused on more like, you know, the x-ray shows I have this, you know, the MRI shows that I have this. And so there's a little bit of a mindset shift um, to kind of understand the whole picture. Um, which can be difficult um, for some people, for a lot of people to kind of get a grasp on. There's also, there is no protocol. You know, there is no guarantee that like, if I try this one thing with you, it's going to work. But in that same thing is going to work for the next five people with the same thing. 
So there is, there's an element of like trial and error. There's an element of having to have a large toolbox because one, the thing that's going to work for one person is not going to work for another person. Then there's, I think just, there are the, there's, but even before all of that, there's like a hope factor and a trust factor. Um, a lot of people have been through the ringer. So their ability to hope or believe that there's anything that's going to help um, is some, I mean, that's one thing to address. And the, the fact that, you know, they've been to a ton of different providers, some of which who haven't been helpful or haven't been nice. Mm-hmm. So how can they trust that, that I'm going, that, you know, that I'm someone who knows what I'm doing that I'm someone who cares, that I'm someone who, um, you know, is actually going to be able to help make any difference because they haven't gotten really any help from anywhere else before. So um, there's kind of a lot of factors that can make it, a lot of factors that just from the get-go that I have nothing that, you know, I don't have any necessarily control over, like off the bat, that can make it more challenging. So... Our current healthcare system generally prioritizes uh, symptom treatment rather than the underlying cause. So, how do you how do you create that paradigm shift for people? It's tricky. This is where you have to do a lot of kind of reading and sensing of the person. Um, and if you look into like I think like motivational interviewing or behavior change, they kind of talk about like stages of readiness. Um, so there's like the phase where you're not having it at all. There's the phase where you're thinking about it. And there's like phases like where you're ready to go. You have to be able to gauge a little bit where the person is, because if they're in the phase where they're not open to considering anything else, I can talk till I'm blue in the face and it's not going to make a difference. Um, so one, there's an element of of gauging readiness. And then depending on where they're ready, I kind of have to like pick and choose like what little pieces of info that I kind of throw out there that I think are going to resonate with them the most. So maybe it might be, um, well, have you ever noticed that like when you're stressed out, like your pain is worse? Well, I can explain why that is, because when you're more stressed, you have more cortisol in your system. Cortisol is like a nerve sensitizing hormone. So when you're stressed, that's, you know, so kind of picking what I think is going to resonate with them most and try and throw in like the tidbits of, of info and science that kind of support this mindset shift. And you you have to kind of get a little bit of buy-in and then you can kind of start um, kind of adding in more and more. And then when they start seeing results and that kind of starts to reinforce the thought of like, okay, like this does make sense. This is working. Like it's a, it's a tricky process. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have a world that seeks quick fixes for everything. (laughs) How do you, how do you talk to people and convince them to pursue a more holistic, long-term approach um, instead of just wanting that quick fix. Yeah. I want I want this to be done right now. Yeah. 
I mean, I would say, I mean, for the most part, people, most people who have, who have chronic or persistent pain recognize this isn't just going to go away completely and it's not going to go away completely overnight. Um, so that is helpful. Um, I think the other thing that is just, you can't just throw everything at somebody all at once. Um, so uh, like getting through the day for a lot of these people is hard. The thought of adding, you know, even five minutes of something that they have to add to their day can sometimes feel overwhelming. Um, and again, like I said, getting that hope and that trust that there actually is anything that can be done. Um, so I'm going to try and lay out the big picture of like, you know, you've had this for a long time. It isn't going to go away. Like, you know, the longer you've had something, kind of the longer it takes um, to get better. But I also will throw in like, it's kind of like a diet. Like, you don't necessarily have to make any huge, big, massive changes. But if you start to make a bunch of little ones, that can kind of all build up um, and have an impact. But again, also, some of it just comes back to kind of gauging their readiness for it and kind of figuring out what stage are you in. So what little pieces of info can I kind of, what seeds can I plant that will kind of move you along to that kind of next step of being ready? With the healthcare industry, mm -hmm. it has a lot of failures. Do you feel like things are moving in a positive direction or do you feel like it's just stagnant? Um, good question. I mean, there are more and more providers who are kind of learning and understanding um, kind of how pain works and kind of the changes that need to be made to address it. Um, so I would say kind of on an individual level, yes, it is moving forward. There are more people who are um, learning how this works and changing how they practice things. On a systemic level, not really. Um, because, I mean, there have been multiple studies that look at, uh, mostly I think it's been in the knee, like knee arthroscopic surgeries, where they have had two groups, you know, the like one group actually has the procedure that they think they're getting. The other group, like they make the incisions they put the instruments in, but they don't do anything. They bring them out and they sew you back up. And so the people who had kind of like the sham surgery have very similar positive outcomes to the people who actually had like the, the actual surgery performed. But has that changed how many surgeries we do? No. Like right. look at spine surgeries in the U.S. compared to other countries. We do a lot more of them. But outcomes, like I've had one surgeon say, realistically, a third of the people get better, a third of the people stay the same, and a third of the people probably get worse. And we know now that there is an element of the pain, depending on how long people have had it, 
that is not coming from the structure, that is coming from more of the sensitized nervous system. Has right. that changed how many surgeries we do? No. Because our, our healthcare system is kind of focused on finding the problem and trying to fix it, like, but in, and thinking that the problem is still very kind of a structural oriented problem causing the pain. So I think there's little bits and pieces of hope, but overall as a system, like there'd be, we have to be some major like changes in how we approach some of, of instead of automatically going to a surgery, like what do we try first? Um, then that would be like that, hasn't really changed um i think there has been in some instances there's been some elements of like insurance companies have looked you know have looked at outcomes and have looked at research and have said you know we're not gonna approve a surgery um you know unless basically you've like failed physical therapy already or we're not going to, you know, improve, approve an injection unless you've tried these conservative treatments. Or we're no. not going to um, pay for an MRI until, you know, these other criteria are met. I think some of that can have a benefit because, to be honest, like with MRIs and like low back, um, a physical exam is just as accurate as an MRI in many instances. So I don't think there is a need to like rush to, you know, imaging necessarily right away, but then to tell someone they have to fail something before they can get something that's really going to work. I don't think that's really helpful either. So there's just so many pieces to the, to the puzzle. Yeah. You mentioned insurance companies and they did some research and now they're more hesitant to approve and, uh, certain procedures and stuff like that. Do you feel like the the insurance industry or insurance lobby facilitates positive change or do they hinder it? I mean, to be honest, for the most part, they're doing their purpose is to do things that are going to make them money. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think there are some things like, you know, not necessarily approving an MRI right away, um, I think has the right, I mean, that to me makes sense from like, again, the perspective of, we know our physical exams are pretty much as accurate, if not more accurate as imaging is, and that imaging doesn't always correlate to severity of symptoms. So I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any harm in relying more on your physical exam initially. Is that why they chose to do it? No, they chose to do it because they didn't want to pay for the MRI. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one thing that is valid, um, but not necessarily for the reasons why they're doing it. Um, so I, I think if there's any benefit, it kind of happens by accident. Okay. <laughs> So it's, you know, it's done for one reason, but it might actually have some sound rationale behind it, but that's not usually the rationale they're using. Okay. Yeah. My opinion of insurance is that they're too involved in the healthcare process in general. Like I feel like insurance should be for the more major stuff where you really can't afford it 
Yeah. Whereas everything else should be, I'm going to the doctor for an exam. I pay fifty dollars to the doctor, and not yeah. have to go through the insurance company yeah. and all that. Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of friends, um, primary care docs, who are going into like who basically have switched to that model. Um, of the, you know, they're like a cash based, you know, direct care. You pay me for, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I, again, I think it's perfectly kind of a perfect, it's the system has to change somehow what the right answer is. I'm not totally sure. Um, what are some, what's some research or literature that you would recommend somebody with chronic pain look into? Um, anything that you can read by Lorimer, L-O-R-I-M, I can't remember if it's E-R-O-R, Mosley, M-O-S-E-L-E-Y. He is a physical therapist who, a physical therapist basically turned pain research, pain researcher. And he is one who has done a majority of the research on a lot of these things. And he actually has a few, several like books that are actually written. Um, they're actually kind of, kind of funny, but they're written like, so anyone can understand them. They're written, you know, for people who have pain, not just clinicians. Um, so any of his books will really kind of, will kind of explain some of this like neuroscience stuff in a way that makes sense. Um, with a lot of kind of real world like examples. So that is one, um, like he does a lot of research, but he also has kind of a, a several um, books for just kind of lay people or whatever you want to call it um, to kind of understand how, how all of this works. Okay. Um, the last question I want to ask is, let's say somebody is about to get surgery. Mm -hmm. They've been in the, you know, seeing a doctor and they're about to get spine surgery or, or something like that. And you've already gone over the statistics, 33% chance nothing changes, 33% yeah. chance it gets worse, 33% chance it gets better. What would your what would you say to them to maybe have them consider physical therapy or or something else? Yeah. Um well I think I mean overall I like Again, that's a little bit of a fine line because if I have the sense that they truly believe that this is the right thing to do and that this is going to be helpful, we know from like the placebo effect that like if they think it's going to work, then I'm going to support them in thinking that it's going to work because the odds that it will work increase. Um, right. But there are some cases um, where I think yeah, where I think it is just a horrible idea. Um, yeah. There's it. It's tricky because I'm, you know, I'm. I you can't say anything that they're going to interpret as disagreeing with their other providers because that could create a whole mess. Um, I usually then at least try to advocate of like, well, you want to make sure that you address these things as well because they are going to like optimize your recovery. Um, you know, sometimes I will have said, kind of depending on the time frame, is like, you know, this is a pretty invasive thing. If you haven't given these other things at least like this amount of time to work, um, you know, if it was me, 
I would think I would try the less invasive approaches for an appropriate period of time. If you've only done this one thing for like a week, a week is not long enough to see improvement from doing like X technique. You really need to give it this length of time. Um, and so that's oftentimes how I will approach that is like, you know, how much time have you given to these other things? Um, and really, this is how long it takes for that stuff to work. Um, but yeah, that is another kind of tricky that gets into a lot of not, you know, a lot of unfortunately, like political aspects within the system that you're working in as well, because um, you're supposed to be trying kind of trying to upsell the providers and the surgeons and and not say that. I think that's the worst thing that they could do. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it's another tricky one. I do have another question. Ash, yeah. is how how can people identify when they're just being sold something versus when they're actually uh, being offered a, a true remedy? Um, good question. I mean, one, if it's like, if someone like, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, you know, if someone is, you know, guaranteeing like you know, either one guaranteeing result or guaranteeing like you, if you do this, you're going to come out of this with like no pain. No one can offer that guarantee. Like that just, it just, it doesn't exist. I think there's also asking for, um, I mean, asking for an explanation. Can you tell me how this thing works? Um, sometimes people who are just selling something can't really explain the science to you like there needs to be a theory at the very least there needs to be a theory about why something works i've had you know people like when i've been going to courses or looking at things and i kind of ask them like well i don't know why it works it just does yeah don't work with that person who just told you like they don't know why it works it just does or if they're claiming that this one thing can fix like a majority of the ailments that you might have, like if one thing, one thing can fix absolutely everything, that's probably kind of another um, red flag. But I think asking like honest questions of, can you explain to me how this works? Um, can you, you know, explain potential side effects? Can you explain kind of time frame? Can you explain, you know, recovery? Um, you know, if, if this were, you know, if you were me, like, would you do this and why would you do this? Um, I think, and sometimes too, there, I mean, I just, there is an element of, you can kind of tell, I think sometimes when people are like, have a genuine, um, like their purpose in this is to be helpful versus their purpose in this is to get you to do this one thing. Hmm. So I think like, you know, asking if I don't do this, what are my other options? If someone then just kind of blows you off and says, you know, there are none, or then you have to go see someone else, that might also be a sign. Okay. I'm sorry that I lied. I have more <laughs> okay. questions. No know, worries. Um, I, I could talk about this stuff forever. So one thing that comes to mind with people that uh, tend to promise a lot is chiropractors. Have you seen benefit <laughs> from working with chiropractors, or is it generally just not worth it. Well, no, I think I like, I think almost every technique has a time and a place. Um, 
I think, I mean, for absolute sure, chiropractic techniques will give you a short-term endorphin. They'll help with your pain because you get like an immediate short-term endorphin release from like the manipulative technique. Um, I think, so I think, like I said, I think it has a time and a place. I think, do I think, um, you know, spinal adjustments. And I think that's the other thing with chiropractic is there's such a wide range. You can have chiropractors, you know, chiropractors who, who focus more on, I mean, the alignment of the spine, the adjusting of the spine. And then you have, you know, ones who, who just like have, you know, expanded their focus, um, to, you know, they've added nutrition and they've added all these other things and they, or they want to, like get you on a wellness program. There's some chiropractors who are like, yes, there's this issue, let's fix it and then go on your way. There's some who, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not going to say, you know, that's not for me to say, but like who feel like you need to continue to do this um, as part of like your overall wellness package because you just need to come and see me, you know, regularly. Whereas from my perspective as a PT, my goal is usually I want to teach you what you need to know so you can take care of yourself and you don't need to come back and see me. So I think it, it, I would never go to a chiropractor that I just picked out of the phone book. Like I, if I was going to go to one, I would definitely want a referral from someone that I trusted. Um, and so like I, said, I think it can have its time and place because you can get some short-term pain relief from it. Um, but again, I just wouldn't randomly pick one out of the, out of the phone book. Yeah, fair. And then aside from chiropractors, people, myself included, like they'll pop their back, pop their knuckles, stuff like that. Do you feel like that hinders physical therapy's benefit or does it not impact your no, own? No, I mean, a lot of people who, who feel the need to do, to kind of pop joints, a lot of them have a, a kind of, they're more on like the hypermobile or excessively flexible side. And a lot of times the reason they're doing that is because, you know, if you have more, mo you know, kind of an excess of mobility in your joints, then a lot of times they might kind of feel stuck or, you know, or they might feel like they're out of place and you might feel like you need to do that to kind of get them like back in place, so to speak. So what I will usually tell people is like, if something is feeling like it's stuck or, you know, whatever, and you know that like, if you do that popping, things feel better, like that's okay for now. What I don't want you to get in the habit of doing is just like popping it all the time in hopes that it's going to, you know, just, you, I don't want you to get in the habit of doing that just out of like, you know, subconsciously getting in the habit instead of using it for kind of a specific instance and specific purpose. And what often needs to happen is the, the area actually usually needs to be strengthened so that you have more support and stability so you don't feel like you need to pop it all of the time. So there's usually kind of a, like I'll, I'll, I'll usually kind of have a, you can do this for now, but the, the more we get the strength back in this area, you're going to feel the need to do that less and less. So be very intentional rather than just kind of getting into the random habit of doing it. 
Okay. Thank you. Amy, that's all the questions right. I can pick up for right now. Um, before we wrap up the recording, I want to give you the, the chance to tell the listeners where they can find you, if they want to work with you or find out more about you. Uh, yes, probably the easiest way um, is on Instagram at the Amy Toth. Um, that is the, the, the easiest way to find me at this point. Um, you can send me a message or um, if you're more of an email person, it's pretty easy. Um, it's amy at amytoth.com. So either way is, is pretty easy to find me. And I do, um, I do have a program where I call the chronic pain recovery method, where I do, um, work with clients to kind of move them through this process of understanding your pain, regulating your system, retraining your system. So you can kind of get back to, um, doing the things you like to do and enjoying life again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. It was a pleasure speaking to you today. Yes. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed it, please share it. And if you'd like to give me feedback, you can find me on Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless or on Twitter or X at TM Convos. Until next time.